In the spirit of fairness, I give you evil kings. After Mary I, uh, Aidbur of Wessex and old Jezebel, it seems fair to look at regal malevolence from the male point of view. There are, of course, no shortage of examples, and for that reason I'm going to limit my look to evil kings in the Bible, beginning with Ahab, uh, consort of the infamous Jezebel. You might say Ahab is more of an unindicted co-conspirator type, uh, see last week's sermon, but he's a bad hombre nonetheless. Next, I might suggest Abimelech, who wanted to be king of Shechem, uh, but had two problems. Uh, he was illegitimate, being the son of a Shechemite concubine, say that five times, and he had 70 brothers, each with a better claim to the throne. Uh, he killed them all, save one, and claimed the throne. Then there is the first pharaoh on our list, this one made famous by Yul Brenner in the Ten Commandments. Handsome, yes, but hard-hearted, stubborn, and seemingly impervious to frogs, lice, boils, pestilence, and most other plagues. Or how about King Herod, stock villain of every church school pageant since the dawn of time? Uh, infanticide is the quickest route to being declared an evil king, so he qualifies. And speaking of infanticide, we meet today's evil king, an unnamed pharaoh who was obviously the boyhood hero of King Herod. In Exodus 1, we learn that whatever lingering gratitude the royal house of Egypt felt towards Joseph and his people was now gone. The Egyptians felt threatened by the growing Israelite population and feared a slave revolt or worse. More taskmasters were appointed, and the Israelites were compelled to build new cities, cities made of stone, yet the sense of threat did not recede. The author of Exodus describes the situation in simple terms. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. Clearly, Pharaoh needs a new plan, and so he calls the midwives. The king of Egypt said to the, Egypt, the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do, so they let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. I don't do sermon titles, but if I did, I might call this sermon How to Lie to a Tyrant. For you see, when you lie to a tyrant, you need to speak to the tyrant's bias or base assumption. So, in this example, they describe the Hebrew women as more vigorous, which I expect Pharaoh heard as less refined than the Egyptian women, some scholars have even suggested that vigorous is code for beast-like, 
which would take the existing bias argument even further. Whatever the meaning of vigorous, it's clear that Pharaoh accepts the lie they concoct, disappointed that they've not completed their mission, but satisfied with their answer. So who are these women, Shifra and Pua? The fact that they are named while Pharaoh remains unnamed tells us that they are the real subjects of the story. Again, there's a bit of debate about their identity, since uh, the Hebrew is unclear. It seems the keywords can be translated Hebrew midwives or the midwives of the Hebrews. Now, my resident scholar is out of town, so I'm flying blind here, but this translation problem could explain a lot. If the midwives were Egyptians tasked with obstetrics uh, among the Hebrew women, uh, the order to kill the male babies seems less likely. If the midwives were Hebrews, uh, then we get into a whole other conversation about servitude and the extent to which those enslaved can be expected to carry out genocide against their own people. There's ample evidence that this occurs, but it remains a puzzle within the text. The one thing we can infer is that these women have status within their society. They seem to have some oversight role among the midwives, since we can safely assume that there were more than two. Perhaps they were the head of their guild, women responsible for the practice of midwifery throughout the society. Such guilds functioned as both oversight bodies and centers of education. Perhaps Shifra and Pua were ministers of midwifery within the governmental structure, the kind of people you would turn to to implement a controversial plan. But the plan, uh, for a moment at least, is thwarted. Pharaoh accepts the lie that the midwives were late every single time, and he must find a new way to proceed. The, the late Professor uh, David Dobb describes the action, inaction, of Shifra and Pua as civil disobedience, and, he says, the oldest uh, on record uh, in world literature of the spurning of a governmental decree. It won't take long for the next act, uh, when Pharaoh, Moses' mother and daughter, the daughter of Pharaoh, engage in their own flaunting of the law, but pride of place belongs to Shifra and Pua. They are the mothers of civil disobedience, engaged in good trouble, quoting the late John, Lu John Lewis, to overcome the ultimate example of state-sponsored violence, genocide. And just because the lesson for today has taken us into the realm of resistance, I want to go a step further and draw a link between the language of Pharaoh and the great scourge of our time, white supremacy. Listen as Pharaoh describes his view. Then a new king, whom Joseph, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous and, if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. It has long been argued that Make America Great Again is a dog whistle to those who believe that America peaked in the 1950s and can be only great if the clock could somehow be wound back. 
And the choice of time is not accidental, since uh, the 1950s predates civil rights legislation, gay rights, environmental regulations, second-wave feminism, and increased immigration from non-white majority nations. The words far too numerous for us could be found in a tweet, and they betray a sense that some belong and some do not. When Hannah Arendt wrote her book on the Eichmann trial, she chose as a subtitle a report on the banality of evil. It has become a familiar and oft-deployed phrase describing the way evil hides behind just following orders or just following the law. When malevolent people control the levers of government, making dangerous laws or enacting corrupt policies, it falls to ordinary women and men to do the extraordinary things needed to meet the moment. Meeting the moment, we meet Shifra and Pua. They bravely defy Pharaoh, and so God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Thus the house of Shifra and the house of Pua were founded, blessed by the God who blesses the troublemakers, those willing to defy the pharaohs of this world. May God continue to bless those who seek justice and resist evil, and may God bless those with the determination and the creativity of Shifra and Pua, midwives of good trouble. Amen.